Hello, welcome to Malopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Malopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and a founder of Malopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist, and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. In this episode, we continue our interview with pain expert, Dr. Abdul Lalkin, turning our attention to current and future management of pain. This is Myelopathy Matters by Myelopathy.org. So welcome to another episode of Myelopathy Matters, where we are continuing our inquiry into pain with Dr. Abdul Lalkin pain consultant at Salford Royal Foundation Trust and visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. In last month's episode, we covered how we experience pain, why it can vary so much from one individual to another, and why it can linger long after an injury should have resolved. In today's episode, we focus on pain management, and in particular, emerging opportunities, but also challenges for an integrated pain service. What were your take-home perspectives, Ewan, from Dr. Lalkin's interview so far? As somebody living with myelopathy, it was really emotional to hear a professional speaking with such clarity about the experience that I've had, but also so many other members of the support community, especially when we consider how overlooked pain has been in myelopathy. And to that latter point, I think that is you know, a recognition that we certainly need to move forward our understanding and strategies for pain in, in myelopathy. And how we do that? Well, these are questions we now put again to Dr. Lalkin himself. But I started by asking him overall, what is the approach to managing chronic pain? The aim really in chronic pain management is to reduce the distress and the disability associated with experiencing this abnormal sensory information all the time. We don't have the magic bullet to switch off this abnormal information. We can modulate it, you know, with medications and with uh, electrical interventions. And you can, to a certain extent, modulate pain by changing behavior. But really what we try to do first off is to get people to understand that what they're experiencing is not dangerous. If your model of pain is that pain always means harm, then your behavior will be manifest accordingly. You will become what we refer to as fear avoidance. So you feel pain, you worry that something dangerous is happening, so you stop moving or you change how you move. When you do that, muscles get stiff, joints get stiff. When you then move, because those muscles and joints have become stiff, you experience pain, which reinforces your belief system. You then see a surgeon or a physician who tells you your spine is degenerate and you interpret that as it's crumbling. And that further reinforces the idea that you are minutes away from being completely paralyzed. And often patients arrive with that sort of cognitive model, which we have to unpack and unpick. And once we've done that, it then becomes a case of addressing the barriers to them becoming more physically active. And uh, often... With musculoskeletal pain, you engage um, in a process of teaching people how to pace their activities, to you know, problem solve, to break things up into smaller aliquots rather than doing everything at once, to learn how mood impacts pain, 
And that's quite a delicate matter because once you start talking about mood, people immediately assume that you're saying they've got pain because they're depressed. But then you have to sort of try to explain to them that the reason why people who are depressed experience more pain is because they their descending inhibitory pain pathways are compromised when their mood is low. And the reason for that is the same chemicals involved in depression, such as serotonin and noradrenaline, are active in those pathways, and they're both active in pain and depression. And there's this kind of light bulb moment when people start to understand that actually they're not mad, and that their pain is real, and they are understood, and that there is a perfectly plausible, reasonable, scientific neurochemical explanation for why they feel the way they do. And it's amazing, you know, And then I describe it in the book, how people come in disabled and distressed and not able to do much. And there's a sort of circuit we set up on the pain management program. And you watch them try to do it on the first day. And it's simple things like, you know, packing a basket, bouncing a ball, doing a sort of timed walk. And over a four-week period, you do nothing for them in terms of magic medicines or interventions, all you do is change the way that they perceive what's happening in their bodies. And after four weeks, the change in their levels of disability is extraordinary because they have reinterpreted and have a new framework um, for, for what they're feeling. So, you know, that's a fairly generic approach that I've described and people are complicated and there are various barriers to successful adoption of those strategies. But they are more powerful and they are much less potentially harmful than any of the biomedical stuff we do, which to a large part is our attempt to apply fairly simple molecules to highly complex organisms that are not all the same. And as a consequence, there are a lot of unintended consequences of a biomedical approach using medications and operations. No, I think that really comes across in the book. And because obviously, I think, say obviously, I mean, in a, in a, as a non-pain specialist field and as a doctor, we we, we hand out painkillers very easily. It seems to be a very straightforward, something that we're taught to do. It's probably one of the first drugs we ever prescribe as a as a doctor. It's sort of bread and butter. And we probably don't see the long-term implications or see things escalate or spiral out of control. It's funny, you ask any medical student or any foundation doctor or, you know, even experienced doctors, how do you manage pain? And the immediate sort of knee-jerk response is WHO ladder. And the ladder, for people who don't know, is uh, was constructed in the 80s. And uh, it's a stepwise progression from using simple things like paracetamol and ultimately progressing in a stepwise fashion to using opiates. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it was invented so that people who had cancer in third world or under-resourced countries could use opiates for cancer pain Um, because in many of those parts of the world, opioids had a very pejorative connotation. So it's really the approach to pain management, which is essentially for cancer pain, whereas the approach to manage acute pain um, these days is a multimodal approach. In other words, you target transduction, transmission, modulation, and perception, so all four components of that pathway. And you do that mainly in order to avoid using opiates. And you also do it with the aim of improving function. And your outcome measures often are, is not how comfortable do you feel, but can you cough and deep breathe? Um, Can you mobilize? Um, And so 
we as doctors are sometimes guilty of, by virtue of necessity and pragmatism, reducing highly complex situations to very simple rules, which actually continue because there is some truth and some utility in using them. But unfortunately, you then don't actually measure the harm you're doing. And, you know, the opioid crisis is a classic example of that. Opioids are good. You know, that, that's the diktat. You know, pain is the fifth vital sign. So, hey-ho, we go and we treat people with uh, masses of opioids. And what we then don't realize is actually you're also giving naloxone to reverse opioid-induced respiratory depression on the ward. But if you don't measure that, you won't know. People are going home with strong opioids post-operatively and then becoming addicted to them. And so when you operate in a relative vacuum, then um, sometimes it's difficult to appreciate the risk-benefit of what you're doing, particularly if you've reduced a complex situation into a simple formula. I think that's very interesting. One of the things I, I, I wrote down here was that, that difference you said in, in your assessment, it, it's not the pain score, you're not promising to make that zero, it's, it's assisting you know, someone, you know, what the impact of the pain is on function, getting back that, that function, and perhaps that's, that's what needs to be looked at more closely in terms of offering therapies to, to arrive at that different goal. Yeah, I, I mean, in the perioperative setting, as an anaesthetist, when I pre-op patients, I'll say to them, look, you will have pain. You will feel uncomfortable after this procedure because the surgeon is going to damage your tissues. We will, of course, try and reduce the amount of information going to your brain. But the best we can do in terms of how you might feel is four out of 10, where zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain you've ever experienced. Because, of course, if they wake up and you've said you'll be pain-free and they feel anything that doesn't feel normal, they'll be very distressed. Whereas if somebody wakes up and you've already said you can do four out of 10 and they wake up and they feel something, then they'll go, mm, that feels okay. Um, and when you're managing them on the ward, again, the, the idea is you say to them, look, these medications are very powerful, particularly the opiates. There is no dose of opiate where you're going to be pain-free. A better way is not to look at how much pain you've got, but whether you can cough and deep breathe to prevent yourself from getting a lung infection following this operation or a clot in your legs from not moving about. Because there you're doing a couple of things. You're motivating them to live with their pain. And you're saying, look, actually, pain is okay. Um, it's normal. You've had a controlled trauma. You consented to it. And um, the pain doesn't mean that anything has gone wrong with your operation. What we really need is for you to get up and get moving because not moving is what's going to potentially lead to complications. So you're changing the conversation from let pain be your guide to look, you know, pain unfortunately is a problematic, unnecessary and pointless complication of what we've had to do and what you've consented for us to do. It's hardwired into the brain. It's never going to change. Um, but uh, what you really need to do is to kind of accept that it's okay. And we can't give you all of this medicine because if we do, then potentially you'll get even worse complications from it. I think it brings us back to that same sort of ethos of managing expectation. And there's a quote I like from Rudyard Kipling, which is, words are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. And I guess it's that combination of 
holistic therapy, expectation management that makes these give the best the best individual benefit. Absolutely. There's a beautiful story um, about Albert Schweitzer who's looking after soldiers in the Crimean War, I think. And he runs out of opiates and the soldier is screaming and he's about to die. And all he does is hold him. And that holding of that soldier completely settles his screams and he dies peacefully. And I think that's the one thing that we should never underestimate is the power of our compassion and the power of our words, which is why the last line of the book is sometimes to cure, often to relieve, and always to comfort. And I think what we as healthcare professionals must appreciate is that whilst this is maybe one of many patients we will see, this is uh, one of only one patient that exists for them and for their families. And it only really kind of hits home to you when you have um, parents who are starting to experience all of those sorts of, you know, operations that people tend to have when they get older. So I have parents who have three knees between the two of them, three knee replacements between the two of them. And it's only when you're sat there at your father's bedside, you know, and you're really anxious because, you know, you, you think about all the reasons why he shouldn't have the operation. And then he has the operation and you watch your dad rehab and you try and encourage him and, and you see how the family reacts and how anxious your brother and sister are about it and, you know, how your mother's dealing with it. And then you, you kind of appreciate that actually um, there's so much behind that person who's come in for that operation. Very compelling. But I guess there are, of course, lots of competing pressures, which is why it's, I guess, easy to forget that that one individual, all that extra time, the talking can make such a big difference. And one of those competing interests you allude to in the book and perhaps has driven some of the work around sort of pharmacotherapies is, is the industry. And I guess that we're moving into an era now, I certainly you touch on it in the book, I'm seeing it increasingly as a conversation around cannabis, medical cannabis, cannabinoids. And you don't really open that box so much in the book, but you allude to perhaps some apprehensions about where that's, where that's going. Do you think it's, it's going to create solutions, challenges, opportunities? I say history repeats itself for the benefit of those who didn't get it the first time. And uh, cannabis and opiates have a sort of parallel journey um, in the sense that both opiates and cannabis have had basic science research behind them, which demonstrates that we have our own cannabinoid and opioid systems, that we've identified receptors that these, you know, that, that, bits of the cannabis molecule, but cannabis plant can attach to. We know that there are endogenous ligands to which, uh, which bind to cannabinoid receptors. We know that that has particular effects, which are both positive and negative. But the cannabis molecule, the cannabis plant is not one thing. It's, you know, it is vast. It contains multitudes. You know, there are probably more than 100 cannabinoid compounds. Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol is only one component. Then our cannabinoid receptors are complex and they're distributed in different types of tissues. You know, we're beginning to realize that they also have some affinity for our opioid G-protein coupled receptors. We know that pain as a biological alarm system we don't fully understand and is complex. So we have observations and reports that if you smoke some cannabis, it makes you feel quite chilled out. And that is the role of the cannabinoid system. It is a de-stressor. But at the same time, there are other bits of the cannabis plant that can cause significant harms. 
So you're proceeding to apply an empiric therapy to a condition you don't quite understand and focusing in a very cognitively biased fashion on only the positive aspects. And, you know, people have been using cannabis for centuries. I mean, the word sativa means useful. And so cannabis sativa is the useful cannabis plant. But the same is true of opioids. People knew that opioids chilled people out. And, you know, at, at times it was recommended for hysteria. And because we know these drugs have an effect on our nervous system. And that's fine. But really, in my mind, there needs to be a careful scientific exploration of something which potentially can be very harmful before we actually end up, you know, harming more people than we're helping. And the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, if there's a market, then people will potentially focus on only those positive uh, trial results or positive experiences um, of a particular plant. But it's a complex plant applied to people who are potentially highly distressed. And that is the big criticism of opioids, is that we have provided powerful chemicals to the most vulnerable people to be used in their homes. And it's only latterly when we've started to measure the harm um, associated with opioids that we've begun to realize what we've done. Now, you know, I'm not against, you know, anything in particular. What I'm against is bad science. I think bad science harms people. So opportunities, but they need to be well thought out, well tested to make sure that they are the correct direction is, is this conclusion there. Yes, I think, you know, like with all scientific endeavors, you know, the scientific method purports to move from a place of rational inquiry, understanding that, you know, what we do know is as important as what we don't know, but also appreciating that as people, we are very much um, at the mercy of our own cognitive biases. I want to come back to the industry, um, the driver, because I, it's one of the sort of recognitions and frustrations we have in, in our field is that there is a, a great lack of research funding and interest and a recognition that a lot of medical innovation is fueled by the pharmaceutical industry and that search for therapies and, and profit. And one of the things that I'm sort of aware of now and seeing is this recognition of the opportunity for things like digital therapies and that sort of umbrella sort of mindfulness or all these sorts of courses and there's an opportunity for them to be prescribed as sort of products or drugs if you like and perhaps that is a way that industry can become more interested in looking at a more holistical therapy that perhaps could have a role in in something like pain management is that something you're seeing or or is coming online one of the issues i have is that many of the psychological-based therapies are actually just sometimes as badly trialed and measured as some of the pharmacological ones. And I think that just because they don't seem obviously harmful and, and therefore kind of are just prescribed, what the problem there, I think, is waste. And I think that, you know, we, we whenever you try anything, whenever you... you prescribe anything, be it mindfulness or gabapentin, you need to be measuring outcomes from, from that intervention. So you need to be asking yourself, okay, well, what am I trying to do here? And in the, in the context of chronic pain, there are the impact recommendations for trials with regards to pain medications. And, and the outcomes really ought to be, what's the adherence? Is there any harm? 
does the person become physically more functional functional as a consequence of um, this therapy? Are they psychologically more well? And I think that's the, and then you need to measure which patients respond, which patients don't, why don't they respond? And you need an iterative inquiry. I think medicine's funny, in the, in the last 50 years, all we've really done is um, implement things that we um, kind of discovered in the 50 years before. Um, and that's because as doctors, we're so busy applying therapies that often we don't really reflect very much on what we do. And we've got a vested interest in continuing to provide those therapies and not much time to actually properly evaluate them. You know, I think sometimes I do have a a bias when it comes to operations because I only ever see the people who don't do very well. And, you know, my surgical colleagues tell me there are people who do very well with their arthroplasties and their discectomies. But I think, you know, where things get published, who publishes them, how we get access to scientific information, there are some significant barriers there. I think that's very true. I mean, I know with my own family, people telling me they have a headache to me as a neurosurgeon is a very difficult, different conversation to telling my wife who's a GP. I think it's it's all brought about by by perspective. So I think you've alluded to a great need for, you know, more intensive science to really be applied to some of these therapies to, to really understand who they can offer value to and and, and how. But I recognize, and I think it comes across in the book, that perhaps pain services, particularly in the UK, are under significant pressure and perhaps contracting somewhat. What, what's, what's driving that? Why is that happening? Part of it is really not moving with the times. So pain services originally developed from anesthesia, and the reason they did that is because anesthesiologists were adept at interrupting pathways nervous pathways to the brain, particularly in patients with cancer pain. So performing procedures where you could damage nerves in people who didn't have much long, much longer to live in order to cut off the signals going to their brain and therefore reduce their pain. And as oncology has improved and as chemotherapy has improved, the anesthesiologist moved into treating chronic non-cancer pain. But they use the same method of injecting things. But of course, if people aren't going to, are going to continue to live for a while, you can't damage nerves because they'll get deafferentiation pain as the nerve recovers. So you kind of have to find other ways of obliterating or damaging nerves in a non-permanent way. So steroids came along and so we started injecting steroids into people's facet joints. And then there's radiofrequency ablation where you could burn the sensory nerves to the facet joints and and then the opioids came along and so pain clinics sort of evolved to be an anesthetist prescribing opioids and injecting people's facets for back pain without really very much evidence for any of it and over time the realization by people who provide healthcare the commissioners was that actually you're providing all of these injections and opioids and various treatments, but people aren't actually becoming functionally better and you don't really have much evidence for it. Parallel to this sort of single-handed anaesthetist injecting things were a group of individuals where they realized that actually psychology played a significant role in how people respond to pain. And so there were some pain clinics that started to involve psychologists and physiotherapists, but they very much remained in the minority. Um, 
And what's happened over the last 10 years is that therapies like facet joint injections are now decommissioned. So NICE no longer recommend interventions for chronic low back pain and sciatica, you know, according to their guidance. And as a consequence, the trainees are seeing the writing on the wall or have done for the last few years. So they go, well, you know, the trust isn't going to be able to have these procedures paid for. Therefore, they're not going to be able to pay my salary. Therefore, it seems a bit short-sighted for me to go into the specialty of pain medicine. And so the trainees are no longer going into pain medicine. Um, At the same time, physiotherapists have started to take over musculoskeletal clinics, and they're now probably going to be the forerunners of the management of patients with chronic pain. And so the model of the anesthesiologist as pain doctor is probably something that will disappear within the next decade. Um, Unless, of course, you're involved in something like spinal cord stimulation, but even that potentially may become a neurosurgical endeavor in the next decade rather than an anaesthetist with an interest in chronic pain. Um, You know, most anaesthetists now who do some chronic pain are mainly involved in perioperative pain, perioperative pain management and running acute pain services. So I think pain medicine as a specialty has really, is really an example of what happens when you don't collect robust outcomes for what you do and you don't keep registries and you don't modify the therapies you offer in line with the best evidence. Um, But even in the context of pain management programs, because there's lack of standardization across the UK, NICE in their draft guidance on the management of chronic primary pain have said that pain management programs should only take place in a research context. So there's going to be a run, I think, post-COVID on everything that doesn't have the most robust evidence base and quality-adjusted life-year basis um, in terms of therapy provision. And so... I think it's a real concern going forward as to who looks after the individual who has persistent pain in the absence of ongoing tissue damage for which there is no you know, surgical or medical cure. And I think that would be an incredibly disappointing outcome because I, you know, from the people I meet and particularly interact with, with, with DCM, I don't think there's any shortage of people who would benefit from a very holistic uh, pain management opportunity. And I think my experience in different hospitals is that pain management programs aren't all created equal and some work very differently to others. And it seems you know, that there'll be an opportunity to sort of shake things up, standardize, have a sort of more prescriptive package, but, but perhaps it's, it's all too late from what you're saying. I think the difficulty we are facing is, of course, that once the trainees stop coming in at the front end and people retire at the back end and you decommission the procedures... Um, then that really affects uh, the provision of pain services. But, you know, uh, my vision very much, though, is for everybody to be able to operate within this framework. And if you're a surgeon running a surgical team or surgical specialty, these principles ought to be adopted by everybody. Because I think realistically, that's the only way that you improve people's quality of life. You can't just send them to the last station on the train line, which is the pain clinic. Because what we really need very much in the world today is a focus on well-being. The final chapter of my book very much is about preventative medicine. 
it's about really trying to live well so that you don't end up, you know, with these diseases of lifestyle and with chronic pain. And I'm not saying that all chronic pain is caused by diseases of lifestyle, but they certainly are contributing factors. So, you know, secondary care plays a role, but what you really need is for doctors generally to understand what pain is and how it's influenced. You need surgeons to not operate within a vacuum and to work with with multidisciplinary teams. And the focus should always be, you know, complete mental and physical well-being, you know, not, not focusing on disease, but focusing on the person and how they can be a better citizen, how they can be a better version of themselves, and how, how you play a role in that, but that ultimately, you know, active self-management and autonomy and justice, those are the, the principles by which we should be practicing. So once again, a very fascinating interview from Dr. Lalkin covering a wide range of topics. And as someone living with myelopathy, Ewan, and I know somebody who's had a long-term pain as a consequence, what were the messages which really resonated with you? Um, pain can be a very personal thing as it affects so many people in so many different ways. And I think we develop our own way of dealing with it. What might work for one person won't work for others. So it's a steep sort of learning process and something you need to customize for yourself. Um, for example, I have a routine in place. It was a lot of mindfulness and relaxation techniques through meditation to help with my pain alongside my prescribed medication. So if I find I'm having a bad day, then I tend to increase my meditation to see if that will reduce my pain before I increase my prescribed medication. And that's really fascinating because that's really sort of a real world success story, I suppose, of, of what Dr. Lalkin is preaching. Is that something you learned for yourself? You know, how did you, how did you come to that sort of solution that worked for you? I think it was by accident. I was having a bad day. Um, I went to bed to lie down. And for some reason, I put YouTube on and I think meditation came up on the YouTube channel. And I put my earphones in and it was the first time that I that I found that I could relax my body and I found that the benefits of relaxing my body and my muscles would actually uh, be able to ease my pain as well. I slowly introduced uh, meditation into my sort of my pain regime really. So if I was having a bad day, I'd sort of go for the meditation before I'd go for my medication if I could because again, and with the side effects of some of the medication, it's quite hard to function. So meditation was my go-to then. You know, if I could reduce my pain medication, that would be a benefit for me, really. And that's interesting because that comes back again to, I think, a little bit where Dr. Lalkin starts off because, you know, he explains that as doctors, we're very quick to give out medication and perhaps not appreciating the the data behind them, the balance between, you know, effectiveness and, and side effects. And something that we discussed in the interview is is the emerging popularity or the idea behind cannabinoids and I know that's something often discussed within the myelopathy.org support community but I felt Dr. Lalkin was really giving a you know word of caution there that we need to really get the science to prove that these work before we start you know routinely you know prescribing them or sourcing them over the internet for example how do you think that will be received by the the myelopathy.org community? Yes again we're back to that the old chestnut of what works for one person doesn't work for another there are people within our support group 
that if it wasn't for cannabis, they wouldn't be able to function on a daily basis. And a lot of these people have already tried the go-to medication that, that a doctor has prescribed them for pain. But unfortunately, again, these side effects outweigh the benefits. So they've, they've looked for an alternative way, what fits for them and what works for them. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, that sort of learning process and, and sort of self-management uh, to a degree. I think picking up on a lot of what Dr. Laukin said, I think from a professional side, it's really important to recognize that the, the evidence behind lots of these medications is, is pretty woolly. And um, I know one that we typically use for nerve pain therapy, particularly things like gabapentin, um, as an example, that, that really arose out of off-label prescribing. And it was really pushed by industry without great evidence and it it became a sort of panacea which is now being rolled back on so i think you know with cannabinoids coming online you know there really needs to be that rigorous scientific inquiry and we're familiar with this in in dcm and surgery because there's desperation to to innovate and make progress and often that innovation can can go much faster than the evaluation which is really needed to justify whether that innovation is is right and safe in terms of cannabinoids, I, I just highlight as well that it's not just potentially got an efficacy against pain. There's, there's also preclinical evidence in spinal cord injury that actually the cannabinoid therapies can actually also modulate and improve sort of motor function, so walking, hand function, for example. So I think that there is a potential role and an excitement behind cannabinoids, but perhaps, as Dr. Lalkin points out, we just need to have a have a moment of caution and, uh, and um, make sure the science and the evaluation keeps up with, the, um, with practice. Definitely. I think it's an excellent idea and an important subject that we need to cover because we've got so many members within the group that find, you know, sort of cannabis so helpful, you know, not just for pain to stop the muscle spasms and so on. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this and something that we really need to cover, I think. Cannabis it is then. But what is coming up next month? Well, we're talking to Dr. James Wilson, who is an assistant professor of neurological surgery, and Ben Grodzinski, a clinical researcher from the University of Cambridge, about the significance of age in DCM. So thanks very much, Dr. Abdelalkin, for joining us once again. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and supported by an award from the National Institute of Health Research, the United Kingdom. Although the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NHS, the National Institute for Health Research, or the Department of Health and Social Care. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. Of course, there's lots of information and support to be found at myelopathy.org, but if you've got a particular question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch, ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye.